the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Keep the faith as we welcome you to the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Good news, the Senate has approved the sweeping coronavirus relief bill that was recently passed by the House. Wish we'd uh, had that in soon enough for Wall Street to hear it. Another rough day today. Um, Pretty much all the gains we've seen since Donald Trump was inaugurated have gone bye-bye, down 30% so far. And the Bible talks about a time when men's hearts would fail for fear. The big question is, is this the time? A lot we're going to break down for you in tonight's program. Later on, constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus is going to join us. We've invited him to come on the program to um, answer the question, and maybe a question that even you're pondering, and that is that can the government, should the government tell churches that they can't gather in order to limit the spread of the coronavirus? Two notable situations that happened over the um, past few days, uh, neither in our area, although I'm sure there are plenty of perhaps uh, examples there too, but at least in one case in Florida, where the Louisiana governor, the Florida, no, Louisiana governor in Louisiana, <laughs> had ordered um, no gatherings larger than 50, a um, pastor, Reverend Tony Spell of Life Tabernacle Church, located just outside of Baton Rouge, said, nah, we're not going to comply. We don't live in fear. Is it really fear or is it wisdom? Does the government have the authority to tell churches not to gather? Well, we'll find out tonight. The constitutional expert, Brad Dacus from the Pacific Justice Institute. Let's talk about COVID-19. We're going to do so a couple of layers here tonight. First, from a prophetic standpoint, is this the sign of the times? I can tell you this to a certainty, that we're a day closer today than we were yesterday to Christ's return. That I know for sure. By how much closer? Can't tell you. Don't know that anyone can. Certainly, though, when we read of what is transpiring here with the global pandemic, and we've talked in the program over the last several weeks about the plague of locusts that is descending upon Africa and parts of the Middle East, you have to wonder whether or not these are, in fact, signs of the times. Well, let's get some insight to this topic, and I want to begin as we um, meet our first guest tonight, introducing the the question of, first off, whether or not is this something that is um, a disease that 
just simply morphed and jumped species from animals to humans, or was it bioengineered? Some thought and comment. Keith Koo joins us, managing partner with Guardian Insight Group. He's got a program. Silicon Valley Insider, heard Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. He is the, uh, as I mentioned, managing partner of Guardian Insight Group. Before that, he was a former managing director of a third-party risk management program for Mitsubishi Financial Group. And, uh, boy, if there was a day and an age, Keith, when um, businesses, individuals need to learn how to better manage risk, this certainly seems to be it. Hey, Craig. Thanks again for having me on the show, and you're absolutely right. There's no better time than now to uh, for all of us to be experts in risk management. Indeed so. Now, let's talk about uh, first a couple of issues here that you and I have had a, a couple of lengthy hallway conversations about. And I'll mention, by the way, out of an abundance of caution, um, we have uh, closed the studios down to guests coming in, which is the reason why Keith is with us tonight by phone as opposed to being here in studio. But when, when you were showing up in our hollowed halls, we talked about this issue. And there's been a lot of um, uh, comments back and forth, sniping back and forth between officials in Washington, D.C. and Beijing. Beijing says, so the United States created this whole thing and brought it over to uh, Wuhan, China, and uh, dropped it off there. And that's where the origin is. And certainly um, the United States suggesting uh, just the opposite, saying that now, you know, conveniently enough, there happens to be a uh, biosafety level four laboratory situated conveniently in Wuhan, China. Somebody must have made a mistake. They put the wrong uh, package back in their lunchbox on the way home, and uh, this accidentally got out. And I have to wonder, from your perspective, what is the likelihood of this being something that is manufactured in a test tube rather than what we're hearing others suggest, and that is it's just a matter of a um, coronavirus that's jumped species? It's a great question whether or not this is a some sort of bioweapon or whether it was uh on its own, whether it another virus and it mutated and we get what we get. Um, I love a conspiracy theory as much as the next person. I would say that it is interesting that you have a book, I think, by Dean Kuntz in the early 70s, I believe, called Wuhan 400, which is uh, Wuhan's a city in China and Hubei province. Um, they do talk about that China does have a bioweapons lab there, but at the same time, uh, the the actual base virus must have originated somewhere. And um, I just had a guest, Dr. John Madison, who's the chief health information officer of Kaiser. Uh, we just did our show, and my show airs on Saturday. So he went into great detail of talking about the DNA sequencing of COVID-19. So th- to answer your question, Craig, uh, the general populace may not know for quite a while, just like we don't know what happened to what was it, Tower 5 or 6 after the World Trade Center um, disaster. But we do know that it is a real virus, and it is highly contagious, and it does spread easily. And I I guess the the utter irony here might be twofold. As I look at this, um, if indeed that this was a virus that was created in a bioweapons lab and intended to be used against the United States, by communist China, there's a big whoops there, because obviously they've been hardest hit. So this is kind of, you know, you've, you've shot your own foot in the process of getting your weapon ready to shoot the enemy. 
Moreover, if this is intended to be a bioweapon, it doesn't seem to be terribly effective from the standpoint of that, while certainly uh, this is a serious virus, we don't want to downplay it at all. But if you were looking to wipe out um, another country's army, uh, this is an awfully slow-moving weapon, is it not? That is correct. But I'll I'll give you an analogy. Um, I happen to have a a colleague, a former colleague, who was on the original team um, at 3M who ultimately invented Post-it notes, but originally they were trying to invent the world's strongest superglue and instead invented the world's weakest glue, but great for Post-it notes. So, (laughs) uh, so, So in terms of the argument that it's not a very effective bioweapon, I totally agree with that. Whatever the intent was, I mean, so many stories about it originated somewhere in the West. It was under lockdown. Somehow there were spies that got a hold of it. There's some epidemiologists from Harvard that are under house arrest, strangely enough, around the whole time that COVID-19 was just emerging in December and January. So, again, uh, we, we know there, there sometimes there are forces we don't understand, and we can just scratch our heads. And to be sure, you know, while longtime listeners to this program know that I am not a a major fan of conspiracy theories, although there have been some cases where, uh, you know, after a while there's an abundance of evidence, uh, take the Kennedy assassination, yeah, it was all done by Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, if you believe that, I've got a bridge for sale here in the the bay I'd like to uh, make available to you. But uh, there, there certainly is, I think, um, as we look at what goes on between countries and the amount of spying that we do on each other and the fact that, like it or not, and as much as we'll talk about singing kumbaya around um, our uh, you know stock market exchanges uh, and there's an interdependency that we see from a global trade standpoint, it doesn't change or negate the fact that there are ideological enemies, there are political enemies – that would potentially benefit from seeing the destruction. Now, this is a little bit bite the hand that feeds you. If indeed this was created um, in a lab in China with the intent of releasing it upon the United States, since we are China's number one customer. But but again, as you suggest, um, not be the first time that a big mistake was made, maybe even by a low-level operative that just didn't realize, and suddenly the cat, or in this case, the virus, is out of the bag. And this is where I think it might be more of Stephen King's The Stand than, uh, you know, an overt planned release, uh, but definitely possibly an accidental release of whatever somebody was working on in their chemistry lab, whether it be in China or in the West somewhere. And certainly at the end of the day, and you, you suggested this, that the findings so far, the early genetic analysis are consistent with what appears to be resembling of viruses that silently circulate in certain animal species, in this example, perhaps bats. And from an epidemiological standpoint, um, this seems to implicate bat origin virus infecting an unidentified animal species sold in China's live animal markets, making the cross into human beings, Evidence of that demonstrating certainly, if anything, that China knew about it very early on. And and before we take the break, Keith, maybe you can speak to this dynamic, and that is that while it might not be politically motivated in terms of the creation or release of this as a bioweapon, to be sure, there is a political dynamic. We've seen it at play here at home, where early on the administration played down the severity of all of this, and likewise – 
Communist China, let's face it, they learned about it and said to the doctor who first raised the flag, shut up. Sadly, he's no longer with us. And in the first probably 30 days, that was the most critical time to be able to shut this thing down and stop it in its tracks. They were engaged in a, quite frankly, a a propaganda campaign to make sure that this did not make its way to the headline news. And that that certainly is, is one thing that we know as a truism, is it not? Yes, I mean, definitely. And, and there's a big cultural dynamic from what we saw in China, what we saw in Italy, and what we're seeing now in the United States. And at the same time, as, as much as China is a closed society with um, the ability to control propaganda, the earliest successes in containing COVID-19 are coming out of Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So those are all three countries with with. Chinese ancestral roots. And interesting to note, as you mentioned, that that in in that region of um, southern China and and, uh, Southeast Asia, where you would expect to see such a huge explosion, you mentioned Hong Kong. Wow. If there would have been any area that would explode, you would expect it to be Hong Kong, just based on uh, what the population is per square mile in such a tiny portion of southern China. And yet, the explosive numbers that we've seen in Wuhan have have not moved into Hong Kong. And you mentioned as well, uh, I think Singapore, Taiwan, have also done phenomenal jobs in being able to clamp down on this. Yeah, yeah. Taiwan is considered the benchmark for great containment. So Taiwan is the example of how to handle it, Italy the example of how not to. Italy is a really sad sad story. And the United States, you know, we're kind of in the middle on this. We're going to come back after timeout, dive a little bit deeper. I, I mentioned that we'll be joined by Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, to talk about some churches that have defied orders not to assemble. Um, and young people, the spring break in a lot of um, college towns across America and in some parts of Florida, they're going to party like it's 1999, all in close contact. You know, they're on the uh, the booze cruise, as they call it. And truth be darned, we're not going to let any coronavirus rain on our corona party. One being the beer, the well, you get it. And it's sad. And it may have devastating consequences. Keith Koo is with us tonight, managing partner, Guardian Insight Group, host of the Silicon Valley Insider, heard Saturday morning's at 10 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., KTRB, The Answer. You can get information about Keith's guests and wonderful insights. He's got top-notch leaders from Silicon Valley on his program every week, and you can find out more online at svin.biz. That's svin.biz. We'll take a time out. Is this the end of the world? Or just kind of queuing up for it? We'll talk about that as our conversation with Keith Koo continues here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Right now, though, a conversation with our friends in the KFAX Traffic Center. Got an eye on what little traffic there is these days. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Um, It wasn't all that many weeks ago when... Representative Matt Gates of the 1st District of Florida showed up on the House floor wearing a gas mask as he prepared to 
vote for emergency funding for the coronavirus to poke fun at what he believed to be an over-exaggerated response to same. Um, I don't know whether or not he's going to have a note of apology sent to Mario Diaz-Ballard, Gates from the 1st District of Florida, Ballard from the 25th District of Florida, Florida, who's now announced that he is the first member of the United States Congress to test positive for the coronavirus. Over the weekend, he came down with a fever and headache and has now been confirmed positive for coronavirus. I suppose at a level here, Keith Koo, our guest tonight, that it's easy to mock this, maybe in a sense, because most of this generation has never seen this before. Certainly, there are a few people that I know that are around to give wise counsel from their experiences in 1918, the last time we had a major pandemic. But this is a serious thing, isn't it? It's extremely serious. And it's funny you mentioned about our generation. Um, Wasn't it just after uh, Congressman Gates that Rudy Gobert of the Jazz uh, said, I definitely don't have coronavirus, and he touched all his microphones, and now the NBA has completely shut down their season. It's dangerous because it's asymptomatic for many people. So you can be infected, but you can spread it to others at high-risk populations, especially those who are elderly or with compromised immune systems. And I think that's where... Um, you're healthy, you're walking around, you might not even know you have it. And not only asymptomatic, but you may never, until we really have seen this thing run through its course, and uh, they get a chance to really study this and understand more about it from a epidemiological um, standpoint, that uh, you, you could have it, never get sick, but pass it on to somebody else and potentially kill them. Exactly. We need to take this thing seriously. And, you know, I I look at this as you sort of take the 30,000-foot high viewpoint and say, okay, what's really going on here? The stock market's been in a free fall. We've shed 30% over the last three, four weeks. I talked earlier about this massive gathering of locusts that are set to descend upon Africa, the Horn of Africa, shortly. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization says it's extremely alarming that they haven't seen this in more than 30 years and that these gatherings of locusts have the capacity to consume the same amount of food in one day as 35,000 people. I, that's a number I can't even imagine, but these, uh, these bugs are able to eat their own um, equivalency of, of their own weight. Uh, every day. Uh, this is serious stuff, and yet I have to wonder, you know, Keith, Scripture does warn us that there would be times when there would be wars and rumors of wars and plagues in various locations. Um, and and as we look to this, and, and maybe even with a sign of hope in the middle of all of this that we don't understand, uh, what is your sense? Uh, some people are starting to wonder whether or not this could be a sign of the end times. It could be the sign of the apocalypse. What do you think? Oh, I, I definitely think it could be. Uh, you said it earlier, you know, no one knows the date or hour of Christ's return except the Father. So before Jesus went back to heaven, he made that very clear to the disciples. But he also said, you know, you'll all be coming back soon. And that is really what you just mentioned, all of the discourse in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. It clearly said that there'd be signs where you could tell of Christ's return. I think that's where people really get hung up is, Oh, nobody knows the day or hour, that's exactly what the Bible says, so we shouldn't even guess. But it's clear, though, that the signs do tell of his imminence, and not only that, 
it's the convergence of the signs that makes a big difference. So it's when the earthquakes are happening at the same time as the pestilence, at the same time as the locusts, that people, at a minimum, should be scratching their heads and saying, uh, not just what you said in the beginning of the show, that we're one day closer, but hey, uh, we need to really pay attention because... Uh, Christ is trying to get our attention. If you were a Mormon and were knocked out of bed this morning by a 5.7 Richter scale earthquake that did considerable amount of damage in downtown Salt Lake City, and uh, in the middle of the uh, shaking it knocked your Bible, uh, I suppose they'll find this passage in the Book of Mormon. No, maybe not. They had to get a real copy of the Bible. And if your real copy of the Bible got knocked to the floor and happened to fall open to Luke 21:11, where it says there will be great earthquakes famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Wow. Uh, your day got off to a really rocky start, didn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let's put this in perspective. There are passages of Scripture, such as the one that I just quoted, and others, that uh, that do point to certain signs to be wary of. Revelation 6.8 forecast death all over the globe by sword, famine, and plague. Kind of hard to outright ignore those scriptures, isn't it? You should never ignore scripture, but 6-8 was, depending on your eschatology, 6-8 in Revelation was specifically the judgments um, during the tribulation, if you have that point of view. So, you know, I am a pre-tribber, pre-mill, um, no judgment on other people's eschatology. So I believe that the specific scripture in Revelation 6 through 8, 6 through 9 is not happened yet, and that's a future time. But back to what you're saying is there's different scripture in the Bible that points to signs. Um, we should definitely be aware of our surroundings and what's happening um, around us, and that. It's unprecedented the amount of things that are happening at the same time. We can talk about earthquakes. Um, usually the argument about earthquakes is that, oh, well, there weren't sensors 150 years ago, so we really don't know uh, the frequency of big earthquake events. But what we do know is for the time that these instruments have been available to us, that more and more frequent earthquakes of greater magnitude does happen, and what's interesting, this is probably more of a sign of human mass migration, that these earthquakes that cause severe damage are happening in population centers. So, again, I think depending on how you interpret Scripture, uh, there's a good case to say, well, for the human observation, earthquakes are happening in greater frequency and causing greater damage. And, and certainly, I mean, to be sure, you know, 400 years ago, if a major earthquake struck downtown Salt Lake City, who knew about it? Nobody occupied it. Exactly. That's true. But all of these events, and, and you, you reference to um, not only mankind's awareness, but maybe even the ways in which we are um, uh, unwittingly perhaps contributory toward this, and, you know, uh, we won't get into a debate over climate change or whether or not fracking helps to contribute to earthquakes, but, but certainly uh, building major population centers and adding all this weight in areas where we really don't know, and that certainly is big time true here in the San Francisco Bay Area, where every moment is, according to scientists, potentially on borrowed time, and yet we just don't know what that clock 
looks like, and uh, we just know we're a second or two closer to it than we were two seconds ago. And, and I suppose therein lies the real struggle, trying to interpret what all of these signs mean and, most importantly, understand what, if anything, to do with them. We'll talk about that when we come back after a timeout. With us is Keith Koo, managing partner with Guardian Insight Group, host of Silicon Valley Insider, Saturday mornings at 10 a.m., on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. Information, podcast, resources available on the web. And um, Keith's website is SVIN for Silicon Valley Insider. Get it? SVIN.biz. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. And one thing I guess that we can't ignore, and that is that before all of this wraps up, without regard to what your particular uh, position may be on the um, eschatological timeline, um, the temple in Jerusalem has not yet been rebuilt. So how critical is that? And against the backdrop of all of these events, is there anything, is there a message that God is sending to humankind that we should be paying attention to, even as some groups decide to gather in defiance of authorities suggesting that we not do so in order to stem the tide of the spread of COVID-19. 5.34 on the clock. Let's get you a look at uh, traffic on this Wednesday. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. 5.38, we continue on our conversation. Keith Koo is with us, managing partner at Guardian Insight Group. His program heard Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. on our sister station, 8.60 a.m., The Answer. Um, you know, there's a couple of ways that we can break this down, this whole question of where we stand from a prophetic standpoint. Um, one, one of the rubs, I guess, is that as we look at the list, certainly it's the talk of famine, plague, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places. But uh, then, too, there's also the issue of the building of the temple in Jerusalem that comes into play here as well, isn't there? Uh, well, you mean for Christians or for just in terms of where the prophetic clock is? From the prophetic clock standpoint. Yeah, I mean, there's a prophecy that in order to get back to your eschatology, that a third temple has to be rebuilt because in the middle of the tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty with the the Jews, um, it's in the temple. So there has to be a third temple built, but that is not uh, a prophecy that Christians who have a faith in Jesus need to worry about if you're a pre-tribulationist, because uh, we'll be out of here. <laughs> Good point. We're out of here. Now, uh, yeah. let's talk about the messaging here. Uh, Keith, as I suggested, and you even referred to this, in, in my opening remarks I said, you know, I, no man knows the day or the hour. Sorry, Harold Camping. Um, and, and yet we do know this with great certainty, that we're one day closer. Um, how much closer that relates to, I don't know. But we're one day closer. Is there not a sense with all of this, as we see the concern, the fear, the worry, the panic, the loss of life, that at the very least with God's permissive will, and I know some people, that this gets to be an uncomfortable area, and well, don't blame God for this. No, I'm not blaming God for this, but I am saying that God 
in his permissive will, allowed this to happen. And it seems to me that most major events that happen um, of a sort that tends to grab our attention, uh, they're really ultimately designed for us to be drawn closer to him and to become more reliant on him. So from the standpoint of what we see taking place here, um, what kind of message, and I've, I've just tipped my hand, my opinion on it, but from your viewpoint, Keith, what kind of message do you think that we can take away from all of this, first as the church and then second as mankind or humankind in general? It's a great point you bring up. And really my exuberance is just in knowing, having a saving knowledge of Jesus. But this this is actually pretty serious. Um, in terms of going back really quickly to the third temple, I, I just want to make it clear that there is a prophecy that the third temple, uh, that a temple has to exist in order for the, the peace treaty to occur in, in, in all of that. But as Christians, it's not that we're looking forward to disasters or plagues or tribulation. We're looking forward to being restored to our relationship with Jesus, ultimately. And so if you think about God in his infinite wisdom and his permissive will, um, a lot has come out, let's go back really quick to COVID-19, a lot has come out that this is God's judgment, absolutely God's judgment. And how could a loving God, a perfect God, want that for his people? But at the same time, the exact same power that would it take for a great God to allow these things to happen is the same God in Jesus Christ, who while on earth did miracles left and right, saving people, healing people, it's the exact same power of God. So that's the context. There was a heartbreaking message from a pastor in Wuhan during the first stages of the coronavirus and before it hit the West, and um, it, it hit the internet, and this is not the doctor who treated people, this is a pastor with a major church in Wuhan, an, um, remaining anonymous for obvious reasons, and they were the first to be out on the street, give people their masks, give people food, and provide support, uh, exactly as we're getting ready to do here in the U.S., maybe not to that extreme, but it's really that community involvement that really touched people's lives. That was what really spoke to me about the pastor's letter um, from Wuhan. And, you know, toward that end, this is an opportunity, a chance for the church to shine. We're going to talk after the break with Brad Dacus about the uh, legalities, constitutionality surrounding whether or not the government can, should tell churches not to meet and, and to limit gatherings and things of that sort. And I, I find an interesting contrast against some pastors who seem to be, you know, beating their chest in pride that they have stood up against the man and have defied the orders, while there have been some other churches like Saddleback down in Southern California that said, you know what, out of an abundance of caution, and because we're pastors and not scientists and doctors, we're going to follow the recommendation and not meet. We're going to shift and uh, move everything over to um, online and, and broadcast ministry. And uh, that church is reporting that their their total number of viewership, including what they would normally do in Sunday morning attendance over the last two weekends since they've decided to shift to a, an online church experience has not doubled nor tripled. It has quadrupled, which means since making that decision, they've impacted or reached four times the number of people that they normally reach on any given Sunday between broadcast online and the physical church building attendance. And I think 
I think that's remarkable. It's remarkable. I think to your point, this is really a chance for uh, those who want to share our faith and really step out in faith in terms of serving the community. Uh, there's so many virtual churches being established right now. Our church has a virtual church. Um, I teach Thursday nights on one of the high schoolers. I'm going to do my first video conference uh, virtual Awana tomorrow night, and uh, we actually happen to be teaching on schedule Revelation 6 through 9. <laughs> that was convenient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and, and as you point out, you know, not only a chance to harness some of the technology to, to increase impact, because let's face it, that's where people are, are flocking to, an event like this notwithstanding, uh, the, the transition is to, uh, you know, more in the digital age. But at the same token, you might have an elderly neighbor that is not able to go out to do some grocery shopping. Here's your chance to shine. Somebody in your apartment building that is scared to death. They've got young kids, and and they're worried about all the uh, implications of this. Or or maybe uh, they're in a position in a job where they don't have any choice. They have to be at work. And yet they've got kids that are not in school now and suddenly have a major babysitting issue on their hands. There are multiple ways in which the church, as you're suggesting the church in Wuhan did, can really shine under these very dire circumstances. So this is really an important point, and something I'm talking a lot about for my show Saturday is, although we're in the midst of the pandemic, Dr. Madison and a bunch of other doctors are very clear that this will... this this current pandemic will pass, but there will be more pandemics similar to this one. So when we talk about risk management and getting used to it, in a sense, as as a species, as humans, we are going to get used to this because it's not going to be the only time this happens. And so um, there's new tools and technologies coming out already. So you mentioned video conferencing. I mentioned video conferencing. Um, Nextdoor, the community app, today they announced they rushed out a version of their community product, which allows now that we're, especially here in Northern California, we're here sheltering in place, they're releasing a version of their app where you can check in on your neighbors, you can check in on the at-risk populations, you can see, hey, do you need somebody to go to the store for you? Do you need something picked up on? Do you need um, to get to an appointment? And it's all within their ecosystem already. So back to technology can, can be good, technology can be bad. This is a really good example of uh, mobilization, and especially church members and congregations can definitely reach out to the communities and help in that way. Uh, good insight, and I know you're going to offer more in your program Saturday at 10 o'clock again on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. Keith Koo, host of Silicon Valley Insider, managing partner of Guardian Insight Group. Thanks so much for your time, Keith. Big, heavy subject, and uh, we'll no doubt be talking again real soon. 548 on the clock. Let's uh, talk with our friends in the KFAX Traffic Center right now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Al Moeller has been a guest on this program many, many times down through the years. Boy, he just kind of encapsulated the whole thing. Um, it's the new normal, and it doesn't feel normal at all. And, uh, and yet, I think we have to learn to deal with it. And certainly, during a time like this, uh, we ought to be on our knees, um, get serious about our relationship with God, get serious about caring for each other, reorder our priorities. Now, in the midst of all of this, of course, whenever America historically has met itself in a time of crisis or crossroads of disaster, this can be times of 
things like earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, certainly over 9-11. Um, people of faith tend to want to gather and pray together, and certainly there's, there's wonder in that, that communal prayer experience. And yet, as the authorities have said, yeah, hanging out together in tight crowds right now, not a real good idea. There have been a, no, a number of notable cases where pastors have said, uh-uh, no, no, we're not going to bow to that. There was one case in um, Louisiana, outside of Baton Rouge, where Life Tabernacle Church there and its pastor, Reverend Tony Spell, directly defied an order by Louisiana Governor John Edwards that banned gatherings of groups of 50 or more and said that, no, we believe the virus is politically motivated. We hold our religious rights dear, and we're going to assemble no matter what someone says. Well, let's talk about this. Churches are struggling with this notion, and there is this delicate balance between the need, you know, the Bible says to forsake not the gathering or assembling of ourselves, the need for the church to come together at such a time as this, the responsibility we have toward one another, and whether or not, indeed, legally, constitutionally, the government even has a right. We may have a responsibility, but does the government have the authority to say, nope, we're not going to allow you to gather. All right, let's get down to uh, an expert who's going to help us understand this. Constitutional lawyer, constitutional expert, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus joins us. Counselor, I have my own thoughts about this pastor down in Louisiana, but tell us what do you say? Most importantly, what does the Constitution say about the right or the, I'm sorry, the, 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 uh, the authority or lack thereof that the government has to tell churches they can or cannot assemble? Certainly. Uh, yeah, churches, individuals have a fundamental First Amendment right for the free expression of their faith, including uh, being able to worship, uh, to be able to congregate together. Uh, that's a fundamental right, but it's not an absolute right. Uh, that is, um, the government can trump that if they can show that there's a compelling state interest that uh, they're requiring to be uh, fulfilled that's narrowly tailored as much as possible to fulfill that compelling state interest. So, um, in this situation, we have a, a crisis dealing with this this virus. Uh, some are second guessing whether it's, it's political or not. I, I think the evidence is becoming more and more c- convincing that it is uh, very legitimate and that there is a definite uh, strategic uh, reason, a rational basis, to say the least, to have a minimal contact. Uh, the government of Cal- the California government under the the governor, specifically under the Emergency Services Act, uh, can indeed um, institute uh, certain restrictions when uh, it is clear that in situations of extreme peril uh, to the public welfare, the state may uh, find the need to exercise this kind of sovereign authority, um, so long as it's to the fullest extent possible in keeping with individual rights and liberties. Uh, as much as possible. That was a case out of uh, in 1995 that came out of a, a California Fourth Appellate Court. Uh, so we see that they, it's not an absolute right, but also the government has to also uh, be respectful of individuals' rights. For example, but also the ECA, this uh, act, Craig, uh, it says specifically it can't limit the press, it can't uh, limit uh, people's Second Amendment rights to bear arms, 
Um, and it w- with regards to these, these counties that, uh, like in the Bay Area, for example, they're being really given a lot of restrictions. I mean, people are told they can't uh, get together uh, unless they have, uh, you know, just uh, certain, um, you know, certain, uh, you know, reasons uh, that are spelled out. I think that that's uh, extreme, and I believe that uh, small groups meeting in houses where they're keeping six feet away from each other, uh, when they're being um, sensitive to the circumstances, I don't think they're going to suffer uh, uh, prosecution of a misdemeanor, which would be up to, I believe it's up to six months behind bars and a thousand dollar fine. Uh, but there, there are, it is very real, and the, the the legal threat of a church actually meeting in these circumstances for a short period of time, this kind of restriction is very problematic and uh, could be threatening. Now, if if they ever came out and said, uh, listen, we're going to put a restriction, churches cannot meet, um, any church that has more than 10 people cannot meet, but was silent on whether or not you could have a gathering at a local pub or a restaurant or um, a, a, a fraternal a social club, that would be problematic, would it not? Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem with uh, what Orange County's come out with uh, and others. They said... Well, you can have child care centers, just make sure the kids stay in their group. Well, okay, wait a minute. They, the kids are able to get together and meet in a group. They also have, like, education, not just for teleconferencing, but actual one-on-one group education purposes. They're allowing that, but you have to maintain six feet uh, from each other. So that right there is an indicator that if people, for religious reasons, wanted to get together in small groups, say at home groups, with maintaining uh, six feet from each other. I think that'd be very defensible um, in a court of law. If a large church congregating together, all sitting there in the pews, uh, that'd be much more difficult to to defend, uh, given the circumstances. But one thing we do look at is just what you said. What are the exceptions made to others? And use that as a guideline as to um, how we should apply that to our First Amendment rights regarding uh, congregating together. This is actually a great opportunity, in a sense, that uh, churches, by breaking up like Saddleback, they're having small group meetings, home church, home group meetings. Uh, it's actually uh, a great opportunity uh, for greater deepening in the body of Christ, relationships in the body of Christ, particularly for large churches uh, that may only have a fraction of their church that are actually doing that. It's also an opportunity for pastors to come and, and uh, visit individual homes, keeping that six feet distance. Um, it's also an opportunity to uh, reach out to their community and uh, provide uh, offer to you know to meet their needs. If you need something, uh, let me know. We'll be happy to share with you, uh, and or to invite them to that small group Bible study. Say it's under ten people. Uh, if you want to meet, a, get, have a standard, uh, the federal recommended standard, which is not binding. But those are some things that can be done that can be actually very positive, both for deepening the, the body of Christ and our relationships with one another um, on a more personal level, as well as uh, ministering to people in our neighborhood and giving us an opportunity. To, uh, to reach out to them, uh, which uh, disasters like this often do. Well, and as you mentioned Saddleback, and I referred to them uh, a couple of uh, breaks ago, that uh, they've actually, in, in, in not only heeding this, this government order, but getting creative, uh, the impact that they have in terms of the number of, of eyes, so to speak, uh, that are exposed to the gospel message from their online broadcast presence and, of course, their, uh, their weekly church services has quadrupled in size since they were told, not a good idea to meet, you're too big. And right. so by getting creative, working with small groups, 
harnessing the power of technology. Um, Rick Warren reported that, yeah, they, they actually exposed the gospel message four times the number that they normally do on any given, quote-unquote, normal Sunday. And, and I think, you know, there's a little bit of, of uh, chest beating here in that we're, we're not going to succumb. We're not going to, to surrender our First Amendment rights. And I don't think that anybody is asking you to do that. But when a pastor gets up and says, you know, we're going to do this because we don't want our people to live in fear. Okay, well, then on the way to church on Sunday, drive without a seatbelt. You know, yeah, the law compels you to do so, but I guess it's your right technically if you choose not to, but just be prepared if you get into an accident to suffer the consequences. Exactly, and that's what people need to be willing to do and uh, to recognize that there are consequences. And it's our testimony, too. Uh, If someone dies in a community or it's a breakout because of a church meeting or group meeting, uh, that can be very problematic for the body of Christ, particularly in that community. Uh, But uh, people can also, churches can also have small prayer times throughout the week at their church, um, teaching times on the Internet, uh, scriptural exhortation and quiet and devotionals shared with the church on the Internet, uh, even coming into the parking lot as uh, everyone's staying in their cars. We've seen churches actually start that way at uh, drive-in movie theaters. It can, the same concept can happen at the, actually at, at a church. Uh, but there's, there's a number of things. We're going to talk about that tomorrow on our pastor's uh, conference call at 2 p.m., uh, people who want to participate, pastors who want to participate to know what their rights or opportunities are, uh, I encourage them just to contact our office, and we'll uh, send them that information on uh, what to do and where to, how to call in and dial in on, uh, on that conversation. And uh, that's telephone number is 916-857-6900. That's 916-857-6900. Is there going to be any resources available on the PJA website for people that are confused about this? Yes, we're going to probably be releasing it uh, on our website uh, by the end of our tomorrow, uh, late afternoon, uh, after the conference call, and we'll be making that available on our website, uh, sort of really clearly spelling it out so pastors and, and others can prayerfully and discern, discernedly uh, decide what's, uh, what, what they should do and, and how they, and the opportunities they have uh, to uh, to really um, to, to grow their body as well as reach out to their communities. Absolutely, you know, I'm 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 thinking of the conversations that I had down through the years with uh, with church pastors and church leaders, and they said, nah, we don't the radio thing, this technology stuff, all this, and we don't really need that internet stuff. Yeah, <laughs> call me, would you? I'll I'll help you out. Hey, Brad Dacus, we appreciate the time. Brad Dacus, of course, president, founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. And information will be available, as we indicate, on that website tomorrow at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 602, let's step aside, get you updated on some traffic right now.